International trade should be boring, should be taken as taken for granted as the water supply or trains running on time until something goes wrong. And our next guest will argue something is going wrong. The trade's interesting again for all the wrong reasons. That's a greatly underappreciated threat to Australia's national interests, and he's written that in a recent article, because we are a medium-sized and advanced economy which relies heavily on trade. You might say, what about all those FTAs that we seem to be constantly negotiating? Well, Dr Jeff Wilson believes that free trade, that vital post-World War II achievement, is actually being replaced by new systems based on politics and elements of trust rather than the market. Jeff Wilson is the Director of Research and Economics at the Australian Industry Group, and his thoughts are contained in his essay, Tough Times, Securing Australia's Trade in an Era of Upheaval. It's published in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. Jeff, welcome to Saturday Extra. Oh, thanks very much for having me, Geraldine. Why are we so vulnerable to these convulsions in the global trade system? Well, Australia is a very small and very trade-open economy, um, both just in terms of our export industries, agriculture resources, and a lot of uh, technology as well, but also in terms of the imports that we, we bring in. Um, and so Australia has been very used to having trade that just works. Um, what we've seen over the last few years with trade warfare, some of the interruptions that we had during the pandemic, and then also things we can see over the horizon with growing geopolitical conflict between China and the US and Russia, is that that take it for granted, we can sell it overseas, we can buy it overseas, it'll just happen, you know, really isn't something we can rely on in the future. And if you look back through history, trade wars have often, dare I say, preceded actual violent conflict, conflicts between countries. So, I mean, trade has been quite a booster for peace, hasn't it? Has that just, well, has that dropped out of people's um, thinking or memories? It's certainly the case as a big association and then lots of people debate whether it's does peace create the trade or does trade create the peace? But there's no question that the two things go together. And, you know, during that last period of difficulty and conflagration in the Western world, you know, the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars, the 1930s was an era of trade war mm. um, where a lot of countries said, our relationships aren't good enough. We're going to sever the trade ties that existed for a long time. And kind of without that thing connecting us, you know, there, it creates an economic incentive not to go to war because your economy will be ruined. Once you've broken that down, a lot of the guardrails are off and some of the geopolitical tensions we saw spiralled out of control. Indeed, you know, they did. Our fear today is that's happening again now in the 2020s. Yes, yeah. and I mean, then we had the World War II and all the devastation, and then we had the you know, thing, things like the Bretton Woods, you know, the World Bank created, and the General Agreement on Tariff and Trade, which I remember studying, and I thought it was pretty dull. But it, I mean, you remind us it's the precursor, really, wasn't it, to the World Trade Organization, which has really been profoundly important in the life styles we have now. Oh, absolutely. It's it's enabled all of the things that we consider essential for like the modern economy, technology and society. And look, at its basis, the WTO is really just a, ba a, a basic set of rules, what you can and can't do in terms of trade. 
nearly every country in the world, just about almost 160 have signed up to it. And it's been around for almost 70 years. This gives us some confidence that if you're a business and you're importing something that goes into your product or you're exporting to a market, that there's going to be some routine and regular, you can continue to do that normally. It's a bit bit like a constitution, really, like you'd have in a country. Look, we have a lot of arguments over whether they're the right rules or anything, but it provides a foundation for confidence and trust. And as we've seen a lot of trade wars break out, which involves governments like the United States and China saying, we don't feel that we're bound by the constitutional rules anymore, um, it really raises a big risk element for us as to other things that we're used to doing for generations now going to be viable in the future. Well, in fact, you make the point that um, the the GATT was a pretty tight-knit club of Western countries mm. and friends with a shared commitment to open trade. Then Now, the WTO is now, post-Cold War, 164 members, incredible diversity which you'd think was a very good thing, but it well, you, I think your thesis is that it does change in uh, the whole situation in ways we may not have fully grasped. And in fact, at the moment, you couldn't say that that whole system is working very well, which has played into people like um, Donald Trump and others really um, sort of changing the rules. Mm. Well, we've certainly, as different countries around the world have changed and the power relativities have rebalanced, the old system where a group of rich Western countries set the rules and everyone took them or leave them, leave them has, has kind of broken down. Um, but there's a difference between there's a bit more disagreement over what the rules should be and this premise of whether there should be rules in the first place. Um, one of the big worries that we see is the WTOs, it's got a thing called its appellate body, but it's basically like the court system as we'd, we'd understand in our in our country. And there's a big argument of, what, of whether the court functions properly as there is over every court ever. Um, but the United States has basically walked away from this and said, we're not going to appoint any more magistrates. And so it can't hear cases anymore. So we have a global trade umpire that doesn't have a functioning legal system to actually enforce those rules we've got. We've kind of fallen into an honour-based system since 2019. And of course, with the geopolitical conflict rising in the world, an honour-based system for complying with trade rules is is not going to uh, survive very much longer. Okay, so let's look at Australia. Were we just not prepared, uh, would you say, for geopolitics to suddenly have, have an impact on global trade? I mean, shouldn't we have been... Um, certainly becoming a bit fitter given the complex and strained relations with China? Look, I think this is a problem lots of countries had, and it's almost a generational gap aspect to this as well. You know, we've had this system at a global level since the 1950s, and it's really been very reliable for us for since the end of the Cold War, for about 30 years. I think for most people in Australia at the moment, you know, not in our working lives have we ever had to contend with a global economy where some countries might just not trade with us because they don't like us or a trade war between two others like the US-China trade war affects us indirectly. So we don't really have any muscle memory for this. We've got to go back to our parents and our grandparents to really look at that. And and I think some of this is is really about... Um, something that's very far back in history, you can kind of put it out of mind until it comes back around. Well, in fact, the, the key question you pose then is how do we adapt to an era of politicised trade without sacrificing the openness on which Australia's wealth is based? Have you come to a conclusion? 
Well, Everett, that, that's the, the $64,000 question. But look, what we see a lot of people thinking about is this new idea of, as a, you could call it trusted trade. So it's a little different from free trade where you go, let's just get rid of all the barriers and you can trade with anyone that's just pure commercial market forces. But actually think a bit more about the relationship involved. Is my trade partner, do they maybe share my values? Do they have an interest in keeping the trade going? Do I have some confidence that if there is something goes wrong, we're going to work together to sort it out. You know, the opposite of what we've seen between Australia and China over the last two years. And so it's not saying don't trade at all, but it's saying when we do trade, you have to put a bit more priority on thinking about the relationship behind that to give you some certainty in this era of difficulty. So that does sound interesting, but surely it divides the world into zones, um, which is the reverse of this marvellous um, free trade that we've enjoyed for all these years. That is the downside. And we, in fact, do see those zones already emerging. Um, one you might hear about is this um, new idea called the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, or IPEF is the acronym. And it's this American-led club of 14 countries in our region trying to build new trading arrangements um, for us. Um, there's some really interesting and important ideas in there. So things about digital economy, clean energy and labour standards. So some content we could get behind. But it's just a club of America and 14 of their friends. Um, and this really raises some questions about for Australia about which ones of these clubs do we want to be in? Does being in one prohibit you from ha- – or, or make it more difficult to have relationships with others. So it, we we kind of need to be really judicious in this era of fragmentation about which kinds of tents and clubs that we want to play in. What's our region doing by and large, would you say? The people who, like the Japans that signed that big new, well, indicating a big new treaty and Singapore and Vietnam? Lots of countries in the region... It- to have been trying to hedge their bets. And one strategy is just to join all the clubs. (laughs) This is quite natural for a lot of countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, that often feel, you know, politically and economically caught between the major powers. It's a very difficult decision for them to make. Um, But the fact is these things are happening as we've seen difficulties at the global level. So if the WTO globally doesn't work, well, what's plan B? Um, And also some of the pressure as we've seen, particularly with the uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where a lot of countries are now under pressure to this question of how long can you sit on the fence? Can you keep trading with Russia as some of the atrocities that we're seeing just get worse and worse? It'll become hard to sit on the fence forever. Well, I mean, our mining and agricultural commodities, which definitely underpin a lot of our prosperity, um, they're very desired by a lot of countries. Where are they sitting Uh, They must be engaged in this in a big way, trying to discern the tea leaves, as it were. Absolutely. And lots of companies have had this experience during um, the Australian trade frictions with China over the last two years, where for lots of particularly those primary commodities, markets were shut off overnight. Um, Australia's advantage in our region is that we're comparatively small by the size of our trade partners. Um, Just looking at food, for example, Australia produces enough food to feed about 60 million people completely, which isn't even a single Indonesian province. Um, So, even if one market gets cut off, if you've got some diversity or your eggs in lots of baskets, you can actually manage some of those risks. 
And we've certainly seen companies looking towards developing relationships with Indonesia and India, um, particularly in the last um, year or so, explicitly as a hedge for these kinds of scenarios. Does Australia have to resign itself, Jeff, really, to the fact that trade with China, given what you're saying, will never be quite what it used to be? Um, I mean, which is a, well, I think it's a slightly depressing thing to contemplate. Mm, one, one could never say never, but the reality is we now have an overlay of politics in our trade relationships, which we don't before. That's not good, we would say from a, you know, a theoretical point of view, but it is a reality and Australia is too small a country in the world to be able to change some of those difficult global dynamics we're living with at the moment. Um, look, what we can do is make sure that we've got the resilience and our diversity to deal with some of those problems um, and looking to not all having all your eggs in a China basket sometimes, but some other commodities. It's often an America basket or a Japan basket as well. So this is not simply a, a China issue, but actually making sure that we've got that there is really the best thing we can do to make sure we're geared up for the kinds of things we're going to be facing. But what sort of advice do you give the members for the Australian Industry Group, advanced manufacturers and so on? They must be, you mm. must be saying to them, there's a new world coming. How do they equip themselves? Um, a lot of businesses in Australia kind of had a bit of a learning experience with this during the pandemic. And I, I mean, we'd all remember the toilet paper wars of early 2020 as well. But you know, that interrupted a lot of trade connections and made companies start thinking, okay, well, we can't just have a single supplier in a single country. And so everyone's looking to do this at the moment. It's going to take some time, but the hope is by having our eggs in a wider range of baskets, next time this happens, we'll already have that built in. We won't have to wait for something to run out or stop and go, oh no, we have to go and find new partners. We can do that proactively ahead of the curve. And across all Australian businesses and sectors, we're definitely seeing those kind of strategies coming as, as we're reopening after COVID now. Oh, well, interesting. I mean, we were, of course, really until World War II, we were quite a committed protectionist, as you, you point out yourself. Mm. Um, in fact, after, really until Whitlam came into power, we, we were quite, we were very involved in protectionism. So I just, why do you say it, it does pose us such a threat then? I mean, you're painting quite an optimistic picture then, but and yet you do say this is something we just haven't grasped. Well, it's a curve that we have to get ahead. But the other thing to remember is there's a lot of things we can do in Australia, but we are a small and specialised economy. Um, we can't make absolutely everything in a country of the size of 25 million people. And so the question for us is like, where can we find those things that we're really competitive at? We've got an advantage in a niche and we can have those industries. We we're able to do that in the kind of free trade era after the 1970s um, without having to worry about the partner we were doing it with. And now we will, but it's very much a case of thinking, what have we got that's going to lead our economy into the kind of future society we want to have? And who are the partners that we can have confidence we can do that with over the long run? They're kind of the trade questions that we're going to have to answer now in a new way that we hadn't before. Just small questions. <laughs> okay. And yeah. I'm sorry to say, yeah. <laughs> oh, the forecasting involved in that. And, yes. Okay, Jeff Wilson, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thanks very much. Jeff Wilson, the Director of Research and Economics at the AI Group, and his essay, Tough Times, Securing Australia's Trade in an Era of Upheaval, is published in the latest edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.